the scripture this morning comes from Luke 11:27 through 28. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. That was fantastic. Good morning, my name is David. I am back again. I'm sorry for those of you who have to sit through that. This morning, I just want to be liked. So I'm going to be five minutes and I'm going to be done. I'm just kidding. Uh, That was a lie. I I lied. But uh, it is going to be good, I hope. Um, It's always good to be here. I love uh, you as a church. I love being with you as a church. Um, I love the community that I see here. I love that people... uh, take a long time to keep quiet and sit down. That's a really good sign. It's a really good sign. So we're in a series called The Words of Life. It is a series that uh, was started, I think, last week, but on the words of Jesus and the life that he spoke through the words. Now, I'll let you in on a little bit something. I was an achiever by definition growing up. It was all about achieving. It was about uh, racking up these rewards and trophies that I could display. Uh, Now, all of us approach life and achievement and success in different ways, and we do it for different reasons. Uh, I think mine was deeply rooted in seeking the affection and approval and the love of others. Uh, The question running around my mind was also uh, always, am I good enough? Can I keep up? Can I win someone's love and approval Uh, from my parents to my peers? Um, But that question rung around in my soul, am I good enough? Uh, Sometimes that got me into trouble. When I felt God speak to us about coming to New York and planting a church, you can imagine how that deep-seated insecurity, kind of idolatry regarding achievement could take root again in my heart. And there was a guy who was doing some interviewing and coaching of me at the time as we were coming in. He still does it here in the city. He's phenomenal at it. He's done it with most of uh, the Trinity Grace pastors around the city and many others as he coaches them to come to New York. And in one particular Skype session, I had already come here, visited, done all his psychological tests, sat with him face to face, and he had spoken over us. Lisa and I were sitting with him, and he said, Man, I see no red flags. There's nothing in all the tests we had you do and everything. I just don't see red flags. So we go back to South Africa, and in a kind of puzzling way, I realized he said that, but he still hasn't opened the door for us to come. He was kind of going to be the doorway for us to come and plant a church in New York City. So I phoned him up. We, we, we Skyped him uh, at that stage, and we said, so can, can we come? And he said this line that absolutely wrecked me, but in the long run really got to the root of my heart. He said, most American church planters come to New York and don't make it. What makes you think you're gonna make it? You're from Africa. And something in that moment crept deep into my heart. My first response was, Okay, I will prove to you that I'm going to make it. And if you've ever planted a church or been part of a church plant, 
That's one of the top reasons why not to plant a church, <laughs> is to prove something to someone. Just putting it out there, if you're considering it, don't do it. But then Lisa, as uh, she is a gift to me, helped me think through that a lot and helped us get to the place where we had to respond because of different reasons. The point of telling that is that we come from such different worldviews. We have these driving factors in our lives day after day, and it's sometimes really hard to discern. A worldview is really important, and to understand the way in which we see and understand the world is really important. Um, C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Magician's Nephew, part of the Chronicles of Narnia series, uh, tells this one particular tale uh, where he tells the same scene from two different angles. And, and he shows how the very same thing that was unfolding, it was the creation of a world, it was this beautiful story of, of a world unfolding that was happening, seen from two different angles, can have two completely different interpretations. And he says this, he says in that book, what you see and hear depends a good deal on where you are standing, it also depends on what sort of person you are. I'll give you an example. Trevor Noah, if you've seen The Daily Show, yeah, he's a, a fellow South African, I'm proud to say. Uh, he's, he's way funnier than I am. Uh, he, he does The Daily Show, he took over from... Oh, thank you. Um, and he, he recently, I don't know if you know this, if you know this, that's amazing, he recently bought a penthouse apartment in the city, and it was about 15 million, and I, I know this only because, uh, uh, well, let me say this, I know this not because I saw it in the new newspapers in New York, because most of us, for a guy who's doing that and earning money and successful, wouldn't necessarily blink at that. That seems pretty normal for a celebrity or a person in that position in New York City. None of us, I think, protested that. None of us got, got upset about that. Maybe we could, but I don't think we did. In South Africa, it was gossip central. There were headlines, and people were just astounded and so put off that he could possibly think of spending that amount of money on a silly apartment in New York City. And it was quite an uproar. Why? Because they viewed it from a completely different angle than a New Yorker would view it. Completely different worlds, completely different worldviews. And if you don't understand that, you don't quite understand. And what Jesus is saying in this text, which we're going to get to, he's saying it from a very particular worldview. And if we don't understand that worldview, we don't understand what he's actually doing, and it just seems like a very simple thing. What he's actually doing here is extremely revolutionary. And I hope I can help uh, process together as we see that this morning. Hear me, let me uh, have a shot at defining a worldview. A worldview is a commitment, a fundamental orientation of the heart that can be expressed as a story or a set of presuppos- or in a set of presuppositions that we hold, uh, I guess, consciously or subconsciously or inconsistently or consistently, but we hold them about the basic constitution of reality. And that provides the foundation on which we live, move, and have our being. You live with a set of presuppositions. And that, those are things you might not be aware of, but you have them. Um, 
These presuppositions, or the worldview rather, can be expressed in a story or a set of presuppositions. The worldview is not the story, it is not the presuppositions, but it is expressed in those ways. Here are a few different questions that would kind of reveal how you see the world. First, what is prime reality? In other words, what is really real? Because you've heard testimonies in courts of one side of the story and the other side of the story, and you do ask yourself, well, what really happened? These are questions that that fuel the way we see the world. What is the nature of external reality? That is, the world around us. What is the nature of the things we see? What does that mean, and how do we understand them? I always remember growing up and starting to learn about philosophy and and hearing the age-old thing of if a tree falls in the middle of a forest and there's no one around to hear it, does it still make a noise? And I played that game with my kids the other day and they were just baffled. They're like, of course, Dad. It's like, but there's no one to hear it. There's no recording devices. You don't know that you cannot prove that that tree made a noise. Classic. I also heard one that said, if a man speaks in the middle of the forest, is he still lying? Sorry, that was a little, a little naughty and didn't land well. Let's move on. What is a human being? What are we? What makes us what we are? What happens to a person at death? Why is it possible to know anything at all? How do we know what is right and wrong? What is the meaning of human history and life? Now, in Jesus' day, they had a set of presuppositions and a story that formed their worldview. And this story was basically that they were a people led by God. Their answer to some of these questions is when they said, what is a human being? They knew or they understood that a human being was a created being. That means there was a higher authority over them. It wasn't just uh, another animal. You you remember that song, uh, You and Me, Baby, We Ain't Nothing But Mammals? Yeah? I won't carry on. There's a few kids in the room. But, but how you see humanity matters. How you see another human being matters. That will determine how you affect the power that you hold, the privilege that you hold. How you see human beings. They, they knew that there was a story that was being told by God. And that story, in essence, the place they were in that story was this. They were waiting upon a savior, a superhero, someone that would come and take away the oppression that they were under of the Roman rule and give them the freedom and the promise that God had brought. They were waiting in anticipation. And it had been a long time since the prophet spoke, 400 years of silence And every time a woman gave birth to a son, there was a little hope in her heart that he would be the Messiah. That was real in their day. That was their worldview. In light of this, we can understand that Jesus' remarks were pretty revolutionary. Now, he was speaking initially before this text to the spiritually blind. Then he speaks, uh, including this text, to the sentimentalists, those who, who love experiencing God in beauty and in, uh, in poetry, but, but they, they kind of missed a particular aspect of God's sovereignty. Now, before we get into this particular text, there's another text that 
kind of mirrors the very blessing that this woman speaks over Jesus. Because let's be be honest at at least and give her the credit. She was trying to speak a blessing over him. She wasn't trying to curse him. She wasn't trying to be mean to him. She wasn't trying to do anything. She was truly just saying what she thought needed to be said in the culture of the day because that's how things are done. Now, if you've had an experience with maybe a a person or or a child that struggles with autism, you also realize that they just don't live by the cultural norms and expectations. And if you've heard the pain and felt the pain of of a parent with a child with autism, you've also learned that they've had to very, very quickly completely drop how they look in public sometimes because it's just not going to work out the way they want it to work. Sometimes it's really hard to process and sad, but man, I respect parents like that more than anything because they deal with the, the juxtaposition of what is real for this child and what they experience. So the other text we see in Luke 1, it says, In those days, Mary got ready. This is Mary and Elizabeth, Jesus in Mary's belly got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah where she entered the home of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby in her womb leapt. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. This was a normal blessing spoken over women in that day as they were pregnant or gave birth. This was this woman that came to Jesus and proclaimed the, the echo, the mirror of this, was not intending harm. She was intending to continue the cultural norm of speaking blessing over somebody who gave birth to Jesus in that particular moment. Now, it was pretty normal for a woman to be blessed and to understand blessedness when they're pregnant. This was another part of the worldview that we're clashing with in this day. This might not be a New Yorker worldview, though it still remains to a certain extent. But women in the day that we're dealing with here found their value, identity, blessing. In fact, they found their purpose for existence in having children. More specifically, in having male children because there was a blessedness in that. And more specifically, in not just having a male child, but having a potential Messiah. So layer all of those presuppositions onto the text and you understand what the woman was saying. Blessed is the one who gave birth to you. In other words, culture defines success in a particular way. This woman affirmed the success of culture at work in this moment. This is us going, I think I said it last time I was here, this is us going, my son just graduated from an Ivy League college, bumper sticker on the back of the car. We affirm the successes that we expect in culture. My son just landed a partnership. My husband just became a partner at a law firm. 
my art just got hung up in the met. Whatever it is that your success is defined by, this was it. This was what this woman was trying to say. In the eyes of culture, you've made it. And giving the end away, Jesus corrects her. And he says, no, no, I'm going to redefine success and blessing for you. And it is no longer going to be defined the way that culture defines it. This was the ladder of success. And I want you to think for a moment, just a few seconds, on what your ladder of success is. What is the reason you are doing what you're doing now? And what, does this, what would success look like? Think about it in your work environment. What is success in your work environment right now? What would make your boss go, they deserve a bonus at the end of the year because they did this? What would it be? If you're an artist, it's about producing something significant that, that kind of garners attention and, and gets it out there. If you're, uh, if you're an app developer, it's something that takes off and the startup happens. Uh, an app is a startup these days. It's the same thing. It's like launch an app and you've got a startup right there. Can you get a successful startup? Can you grow it to a certain amount? What are the markers of success that either the world or you have placed upon your life? Now, I want to say this carefully because we'll get back to this. I'm going to kind of jump ahead just to ease the tension. None of those markers are wrong. None of them are inherently bad, and Elizabeth proves that later on, as we'll see. But what are those markers for you? What is your marker of success in marriage and in family? What is your marker of success as a, as a person who's unmarried? Is your marker of success just getting married? Just a, 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 grant me a slight aside. Here's what we do so well. I do this so well. If you're married, no, no, let me start with this. If you're unmarried, we become extremely good at, at, at measuring the worst of singleness against the best of marriage. And then we define that it's better to be married. And if you're married, you often do this. You, you pit the, the, the best of singleness against the worst of marriage, and you wonder why the heck you did what you did. Again, a worldview clash. Let's not do that. That doesn't help the, what you see and think. Let's empathize with each other, whether you're married or not. Not just because both suck. That's not what I'm saying. But both have incredible benefits and incredible pains along with it. And that's why Paul comes and he actually does what Jesus does here is he redefines singleness. He actually says, are you unmarried? It is good for you to remain that. That is such a revolutionary statement in the day. According to the worldview, you are unloved, you are not okay, you are not accepted, you have not succeeded if you do not get married. And Paul says in Corinthians, hey, if you're not married, that's okay. In fact, it's good. And he, and he mentions a few reasons why it's good to remain unmarried. So what Paul does in that text and what Jesus does in this text is pretty remarkable. He comes against the foundational norms of culture. Now, success for a pastor 
speaking from my vantage point, we also define that wrong. <laughs> We're so good at defining it poorly. How many people come? The bums in the seats. The budget. The books we write and the name we get out there. We define success in just a completely different way from what Jesus is doing here. For you, think about your own. And recognize that what we do so well is we go back to Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, and we basically say what they said. Let us make a name for ourselves. That's what we're after. Now because for a woman in the Middle East in this day, birthing a child was intrinsically connected to their value and identity, Jesus comes and he does a few things in this particular instance. He says, no longer is your value defined by your ability to give birth. He says, no longer are you successful and valued when you are accepted in the eyes of your culture. And one by one, he's unburdening this woman from the very cultural norms that has been laid upon her in a, in a burdensome way that she has to live up to. He's also, by the way, undoing, I didn't even put this on there, he's also undoing a deeply inherent belief that men were superior in value to women. All of a sudden, he's completely starting a revolution and saying, no, that's not how I created them. That's just not true. And he's saying that being deeply and fully satisfied comes from obeying the will of the Father. No longer from adhering to the cultural norms of success. And without her ever thinking this would happen, he is slowly and surely, very, very surely, in a very revolutionary way, undoing the burdens that were placed on this particular woman and the understanding of culture. And we see three things come from this text that we have to wrestle with. One, that God is revealed and glorified in obedience. See, God wanted humanity when he created them to be fruitful, to multiply, to thrive. That was the Genesis mandate. That was what he originally intended. But he also then saw the brokenness of sin that came up upon our shoulders and how that burdened us and how that breaks us even further. And then Jesus says this, he says, blessed, this is the word that is used in um, the Beatitudes when he's doing the Sermon on the Mount. He, he seems to be deeply interested in us being thoroughly happy. Most people don't see God that way. Most people see God and go, he is deeply interested in making life miserable for me and spoiling my fun. That's how I grew up. So I had to perform at a certain standard in order to kind of receive joy and happiness. Jesus, from Genesis to the Sermon on the Mount, when, when, from the creation, Sermon on the Mount, to this moment, he seems to be really interested in our deep, deep, deep joy. 
And if you're not a believer in God and, and, and you've wondered about this, this Christian God has maybe just like seemed like a spoil sport. Please reconsider because Jesus' words perpetually get back to this word, blessedness. And that word blessedness means deeply and irrevocably joyful, happy, well. That is what he's interested in. That's why he created us to be deeply joyful and doing well. God is revealed and glorified in our obedience. If he is the king and he is God and he created us, but we are miserable under his rule, he doesn't get any glory. He's not a good God. He's a miserable God. So it is mutually beneficial for his people to be deeply joyful and for him to be the king who reigns over them. Those things are not at odds with one another. And still, every day, we are told by our culture that those things are at odds with one another. If you're going to choose the life of religion, you're always going to be miserable because you always have to give up fun. Second, our value as created human beings makes sense only in the light that obedience brings. When he says, blessed rather are those who do the will of the Father. He's saying you will only understand true blessedness, true joy in the light that obedience brings. That you will only understand the goodness of the Father if you obey the Father. My kids, I tell you what, it's one of my most frustrating things because like I said right in the beginning, I like to be liked And with my children, it's the same thing. I don't like to be the mean dad. But I know at times I am being in their eyes the mean dad because I know that the end result is their joy and their thriving when they don't stick their finger or the knife in that plug electric socket. It's for their benefit, it's for their joy, it's for their understanding that I'm helping them with disciplines and realities. And yet, sometimes we don't understand that. And we don't understand it until we're in the, on the far side of obedience, which is the third point. Our deepest joy or blessedness, as Jesus describes, lies on the far side of obedience. So if we go back to Mary and Elizabeth, what I read to you earlier was, earlier was not the end of the story. Mary and Elizabeth has this, this kind of parallel conversation to the one we're looking at right now and says this. Why uh, uh, The story goes on. And why am I so honored, Elizabeth says, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Listen to this. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord's word to her would be fulfilled. See, there is a sense that Elizabeth initially was exclaiming the same falsehood, the same cultural reality that said you'll only be blessed and valued and happy if you adhere to the norms of culture, which is having a child, and in this case, actually having the Messiah. But then she goes on to say this. She says, blessed are you because you believed the word, and belief and obedience, I want to argue, are exactly the same thing. You obey the law of gravity because you believe in it. If you did not believe in the law of gravity, you would do 
incredible things like walking off buildings, but you would very quickly realize that your belief was wrong. When you truly believe something, you actually act according to that belief. You cannot not act according to that belief because then you don't actually believe it. And so what Elizabeth is doing here is she's saying that the act of her bearing this child was an act of obedience to God. So she is not blessed because she's having a child as a woman. She is, she is blessed because she believed God and obeyed him. And the definition is actually reinforced, and that is exactly what Jesus says later on. He says, no, no longer are you blessed because you have a child. You are now blessed, happy, joyful, because you're obeying the Father. Elizabeth knew this. Now, if you want to see what you believe in particular areas of your life, it is pretty easy to do so, or you can get some help. If you want to see what I believe about God's provision, His goodness, come and look at my budget. Come and look at how I use and spend my finances. If you want to see how I see and believe and what I believe about covenantal love and the love of Jesus and the Father to us, come and look at my marriage. Come and see how I love and treat Lisa when I think I'm being unfairly treated. If you want to see what you believe about the nature of humanity, the nature of every human being created in the image of God, then, then it's easy to do so if I see how you treat your enemy, how you treat the marginalized, the outcast. We can see what we believe in the way that we live. Dallas Willard says this, Jesus came among us to show and teach the life for which we were made. He came very gently and opened access to the governance of God with him, set afoot a conspiracy of freedom in truth among human beings. Having overcome death, he remains among us. By relying on his word and presence, we are enabled to reintegrate the little realm that makes up our life into the infinite rule of God, and that is the eternal kind of life. Caught up in, this, in his active rule, our deeds become an element in God's eternal story. They are what God and we do together, making us part of his life and him a part of ours. St. Augustine said this, Thou madest us for thyself, and our, hearts, our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. And so our deepest satisfaction, our blessedness is the obedience of the Father. All our longings, our desires will find themselves truly fulfilled only in obedience, not in the pursuit of the cultural definition of success. When God takes our pleasures away, consider why He's doing so. Consider that you were relying perhaps on the circumstance for the blessing instead of on the obedience of the Father. What if there is a blessedness, a joy, a happiness, a thriving that is completely disconnected from the circumstances that you find yourself in. Would that not be the holy grail of existence under the Father's love and care? So here's the bad news as I end. The bad news is this. Even if we break down the cultural obstructions to our blessedness as we've done, 
we still face one insurmountable object to living in that place. One insurmountable obstacle. And it is this very word, obedience. Because it does say that if we obey, we will receive blessing. The problem with that is this. You and I, if you were me, because I'm the achiever type, I want to go out and do something. I'm like, great, I will do it and I'll show you. But I will leave here and I will absolutely fail before I get home today. Just by walking my boys home from here home, I would already disobey the Father. I know it. Because I know myself. So this blessedness that Elizabeth hints at when she speaks about believe, when you believed, this blessedness is reinforced by Paul when he says in Ephesians 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who, listen up, has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. None of us can obey him. And so none of us can be blessed as he described in that text to that lady. But what he does is he points to a greater reality and that greater reality is this. In Philippians 2, Paul says this again. And being found, this is about Jesus, Paul's writing about Jesus, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus obeyed perfectly through his life, but even obeyed to the very worst possible act of obedience that you can have, which is death, obedience to the point of death. And because of that, he says, we are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Why? Because Christ obeyed perfectly for us. And we just beautifully can receive everything that he did for us. His perfect righteousness, his perfect life, his perfect obedience. The way it says, Jesus says, uh, blessed rather is the one that obeys the will of the Father. Now the Father looks down upon the children and goes, oh, you've obeyed perfectly. My favor and my love is perfect on you. Because I see you through the eyes of Jesus' perfect obedience. And all of a sudden, as we see this blessedness that we've had to kiss goodbye because we absolutely can't do it, we now have free access to a life of favor and blessed joy because Jesus did what he did. Because we have the full measure of blessing in Christ, we can not only receive the favor and the blessing of the Father, But because we have that, we can also live in the blessing of the Father. We now can live in obedience because Jesus came and obeyed fully. And he gives us the power of the Holy Spirit to do so. So as we come to the table, as we remember what Jesus did for us, we come and look not just as a little like portal of access that we have to remind us, yes, Jesus died. We come to remember that Jesus died completely in full obedience so that we can have what Jesus says to this woman, so that we can be completely unburdened from the the measures and the stresses of the pursuit of success in this world, of blessedness in this world, and we can receive blessedness fully because of Jesus, no matter what your circumstance, no matter if you've lost your job, no matter if you have to move into a crappy little apartment with bed bugs, you can still be fully blessed. You can still experience the, the joy, and that is when we truly live.
when we realize that nothing that comes at us can take that away from us. We are in the full measure of blessing of Christ. Christ. Would you take a moment of reflection and just consider the pursuits of success. Think of the things that bring anxiety to your stomach about going to work tomorrow. Think of the things that in your life right now are just stirring and you're like, this is not okay. Why is this, this burden upon me? And just bring that to Jesus. Just bring it to him right now where you are. Just speak to him. Just say, God, I am running after something and, and if that outcome doesn't happen, I feel like I'm failing. And just give it to him. And I'll pray and then we'll invite you up to come and partake in communion. Father, we confess that all of us are like that woman that come and speak a certain kind of expectation over our lives to make it in New York City, to survive, to raise kids a certain way, to have a certain kind of marriage, to have a certain salary, to pursue all of these things that we have had spoken over us or that we have spoken over ourselves. Lies that actually don't lead to true joy. We confess that we have believed these lies by the way that we live. We think we don't believe them. We can say the right things, but then on a Monday morning, we go after them, God. We run after them with all of our heart and soul and mind, and we forget that there is a blessedness, a joy, a true joy that cannot be taken away, that comes only from you. And we come to you today, the fountain of joy, the river from which we can drink and receive this joy. We come to you because there is no other place that we can find the words of life. There is no other place, no matter how hard or harsh your words seem, there is no other place that we can find the words of life. And we are grateful that you have opened your arms wide, that we can come to you today. Father, for those who are far from you, those who are skeptical of you, those who are not sure that you are a good father, I pray for them this morning. I pray that you open their hearts, that you change the way they experience you, that they see through these texts that you are intrinsically, deeply committed to our deepest joy, even when we don't understand that. Come and reveal it to us, God. Come and show it to us. And as we come to the table, as we come and partake in eating of the bread that symbolizes your body and the cup that symbolizes your blood that was shed for us, we come humbly to say again, God, thank you that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. In the fact that you conquered death, the worst thing that could possibly happen that we don't have to face that anymore, God, that we are forever alive with you, that even dying physically is just a gain for us because we get to be with you. That is a view, a worldview, a belief that we want to live by. Come and help us as we partake in this meal together as a sign, as a remembrance, as a symbol that brings us to you again, that reminds us again of you and what you've done for us.
bless everyone now in that manner as they come and partake in this, we pray in your name. Amen.